0: Microphone check. One, two. What is this? It's the five foot seven assassin in the podcast business? I am your host, Rohan Patra. The rap music plug at your service. Here we are again at
1: the end of Get stuck. Get stuck. Get
0: stuck. Get stuck. The rap music plug podcast, presented by QLC TV, is the remedy to the "I don't have anything good to listen to" problem. Through in-depth album and song reviews, as well as artist interviews and general rap commentary sprinkled in between on all of what the mainstream and underground rap scenes have to offer, this is your one-stop shop to knowing what to add to your queue, play next, or pop into your record player. Welcome to the show. What is up, family? Today, I have a very, very special guest with me. He is a rapper, educator, and now father creator of many projects over the years but particularly in 2021 he's really put in a ton of work having dropped scenic deluxe with nick arcade we dress the city with our names with august fanon and now his latest project released under backwood studios trapdoor with messiah music he's an absolutely unbelievable lyricist who can paint a picture with his rhymes with the best of them in my opinion so I'm pleased to welcome DevC. All
1: right. Yo, you are what you eat. And they physique is pill skin. Headed off track, will skidded on the ill wind. Still limb, I'm whipping this vibrating can chill with field trips to perdition. Don't make me click this kill switch.
2: Finish your firefights, extinguish some pilot lights. Demons finally facing extinction in the rhymes I write. How are you doing, man? I'm good, man. I'm good. Just, you know, tired and, and overwhelmed and you know, all of the things that come with being a new dad. But yeah. apart from that, I've been really fortunate to have gotten a reception for my music that's unprecedented at this point. So I really appreciate all of the support people have been showing, all of the interest that people like yourself have been showing. And of course, huge shout out to Masai Music and Backwoods Studios for really remaining patient and seeing this through to its conclusion. So yeah, I mean, pretty much very grateful, very overwhelmed in a variety of different ways, uh, and very sleep deprived, but apart <laughs> from, apart from all of those things, man, it's, it's mostly very positive.
0: Yeah, man. The, the reception that I've, I've been reading, on this latest record, but just throughout the year with the other projects you released, it's been pretty pretty phenomenal, been pretty phenomenal. And I'm really happy for you uh, on that thank note. Thank you, thank you. Uh, it's crazy too, because I, I think the first time you got on my radar was, I, I keep repeating this because it's true, and you're another example, is that uh, August Fanon, Iceberg Theory record, they had like a, a hundreds, but but uh, dispatches from the cali Yuga. that was a record dropped late 2020 and you're on one of those songs and i remember i tweeted about it i was like whoever dropped because i didn't i wasn't familiar with the music but i was like whoever had that verse and i like whatever i put a quote in it i was like i need to find more music by this guy and then and then iceberg theory is like oh that's def c i was like okay cool bet let me let me check this guy out That was the fucking gateway drug that album to so many artists and you being one of the best, the best results of that. Um,
2: Thank you, man. Thank you.
0: Yeah. From the get go, I've just been very astonished by the way you write. And I know we're going to get into a lot of that and just like your thought process making music. But before we get into any of this, any of your recent run, you're from Chicago and growing up in Chicago.
2: Um, So I'm from just to just to kind of correct it a little bit. I was born in Chicago, but I was raised in a suburb of Chicago called River Forest. It's about okay. five to ten minutes west of city limits. And I say that I like to specify that not because, you know, I mean, obviously the Chicago hip hop community raised me. So it's mm-hmm. not that I I want to. And Chicago in general welcomed me with open arms, but it's more so because I grew up privileged. I grew up in a very wealthy suburb and there are a lot of hurdles that people have to leap, especially black and brown people in Chicago, that I did not have to leap based on where I grew up. So the one thing that I don't want to do is um if obviously if people from the city claim me as part of the city, that's great. But I don't want to claim the city if I didn't have to experience what was happening there in order to, you know, be who I am now. You know?
0: No, that's a great, that's a great point. Yeah. That, that's really important. I'm glad you, I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, yeah, I, f- I feel that's, uh, that's really important to call out because yeah, the experience, if you're growing up in where you grew up clearly, and then where someone else grew up in more of the inner city, like the, the experience, the, the life experiences, the hurdles, it's not even comparable, but mm-hmm. as you mentioned, you did say that you were very much welcomed with open arms and I, that's really great to hear. And that speaks to i think the genre's uh ability to truly if you have good intentions if you have a good heart if you just love the craft like it will welcome you it's not it's not needing to fit in a certain box a certain background as long as you just got respect you know and one thing i really like about the rap scene that i've found throughout my exploration into chicago specifically in that kind of greater chicago area is that it seems very tight knit. Mm. Um, I always like, I think even more that more so, honestly, than I see in other scenes, it just seems like people are really like repping each other, making room for one another on records. And you people like you, solar five green slime. Like, I just seem like you guys are always repping each other. It's just really beautiful to see. What do you, what do you love the most about the Chicago hip hop scene? And what about it? What about hip hop generally kind of like, drew you into actually creating yourself and participating in a more
2: significant scale? Mm. So what I love the most about Chicago's hip hop scene is that every type of hip hop is made here. And it's made very well. And I think there are very few other cities that can say the same. Um, I think the Bay Area for sure can say that. Los Angeles can say that um detroit can say that as well but uh and that's just in the united states i think toronto and london can probably say that too but i think you would be hard pressed to find anywhere that isn't any of the places i named that makes as much music at a high quality level as chicago in such diverse ways and it's interesting that you said that the chicago hip-hop scene seems close-knit because we had a reputation for quite some time as a barrel of crabs, just kind Interesting. of, you know, people not really reaching down to the next generation or people feeling like they had to compete for a limited number of spots. And there are still rappers, I think, who operate with that mentality today, but the difference is it's kind of fewer and farther between than it used to be. And a major reason why is because I think a lot of us A, learn from the mistakes of some of the people who came before us, B, we had OGs in the generation of Chicago hip-hop artists that came before us, immediately before us, so I'm thinking of Tomorrow Kings and Lamont Manuel and um, people who really kind of helped put us on in ways that they were not put on, which then was like, okay, cool, the only way I can pay this back is to pay it forward to whoever is gonna be up next in Chicago. And people like Solar Five, in addition to just, in slime, in addition to being incredible rappers and producers, Mm -hmm. because they're good at everything, which really pisses me off when I have to (laughs) make a song with them, but I walk in the studio, I'm like, damn, he's over here chopping stuff up on the MP. He's over here chopping stuff up in Ableton. I'm over here with my little pen and pad, just trying to keep up on the rap end. Cause then they'll make a fire beat and then they'll out-rap me on the same thing. Oh my guess. <laughs> and I'll just be like, okay, cool. Now I I can't even just pull my own weight. I gotta, I gotta like hold my own in general in terms of just even being able to qualify to be there because I don't do as many things as well as they do. Um, but Slime and Solar Five were running a studio space called 406 that was yeah. really an intersection of a bunch of different sub within Chicago hip-hop, for lack of a better term, that kind of came together there. So you had people like Lucky who were going through there, people like Vic Mensa, Chance the Rapper, Mick Jenkins. You had yeah. No Name was in there. Uh, Nico Segal, just a lot of very gifted musicians for a few years were just in and out of that space working. And I think from that, there was a desire for a lot of us to just kind of see each other succeed in a variety of ways. And initially, and, and also the reason why me, Slime and Solar put on for each other is because we've known each other for over 10 years. So that's mm-hmm. another thing too. Those are my brothers. I tell those dudes I love them. They tell me that back, Slime will tell me that and then roast me for saying it. But you know, like that's the, that's kind of the, the tight knit bond that I have with a lot of people in Chicago because again, like I'm not from the city. People did not have to put on for me. People did not have to welcome me into the scene. People did not have to check me Right. Because I think that I used to tell people I was from Chicago in high school and then I had an OG who would check me on that. And it wasn't because. It came from a place of love and care, it wasn't coming from a place of, you know, what are you doing here? Yeah. So. Yeah, I mean, I think that a big reason why Chicago's hip hop community is so tight knit now and something that I love about it. It's because people just had to work together on stuff and grow with each other, and, and people were able to kind of watch each other's trajectory rise over the years. So I'm thinking of people like No Name and Pivot and Big mm-hmm. Jenkins, Saba, you know, people who I was in studios with and may have even made music with, who are just, in addition to being very talented, had an incredible work ethic and have earned everything that they have. So I can't, and it's also an attitude, kind of their mentality. A lot of us who are older adopted it. Like we kind of set our egos to the side and which was tough for some of us. It was tough specifically for me. There's a song on trap door called Scapegrace, where I talk about it, but it's tough to set aside that ego of, of really saying to yourself like, Oh, this person is X amount of years younger than me was on the open mic list when I was the feature at the open mic. But they were able to make a career in music Hmm. while I was still struggling to put, you know, uh, life together with a part time job that had full time hours. So it's, I think. Something that a lot of us had to kind of mature together, build together, let go of a lot of ego driven stuff and then just try to put on for the generations that came after us, because if I look at. Oakland, for example. People like Too Short, E-40, even somebody like Hammer, they put on for the younger MCs there, and then somebody like Mr. Fab puts on for the younger MCs there, and so on and so forth. I I look at Houston and Jay Prince, I look at what Pimp C did there and who he tried to bring together. I Yeah, I just look at a bunch of different cities that had scenes that were smaller than Chicago's, but did a much better job of unifying and putting on for one another. Hmm. And I think that's what I love about Chicago hip hop at the moment is apart from two or three people, I think that we all have that same mentality of, let's check our egos, leave our egos at the door and see what we can do to really turn this into something that's bigger than all of us. Yeah. And in addition to that, to answer your second question, I got into hip hop because I had two god sisters who were older than me, who were really into crisscross. And they dragged my dad to a crisscross concert and brought home a cassette copy of the Jump single. And that was the first time that I'd ever heard hip hop. Yeah. And then, and it was just on from there. Just, I just fell in love with the genre.
0: So early on, it didn't, it didn't, there was no growing period. You were just immediately like, fuck, this is it.
2: Yeah. And I, but I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't studious about it. Right. Like I think I was two years old, so I still was, yeah, I loved crisscross and all that, but I was also like listening to Rafi, you know, and like mm-hmm. all of the, all of the stuff that in Sesame street tapes and all of the stuff that, um. you know, any kid would listen to. Mm-hmm. And then at a certain point it became, I'm listening to the radio and I'm hearing juvenile and, and Jay Z and Method Man and Redman. And then from there, it was kind of like, cause I didn't have control over the radio. I could only really listen to the radio. I wasn't getting an allowance. It wasn't like I yeah. could spend money on whatever I wanted to spend money on. And then from there, eventually I was, tuned into a radio station called power 92 which is one of the two major hip-hop stations in Chicago and they had a mix show that was run by a guy named DJ Ferris who was a DJ in the heavy hitters network with like DJ Enough and a lot of people from Hot 97 and around the country really so listening to that mix show was when I really was tuning in around the time that like Jay-Z and Nas first started battling. So that was kind of my introduction to that side of hip hop. And then within that year, I'm listening to The Blueprint and Stillmatic. I'm listening to Iron Flag by Wu-Tang. Like that's my first Wu-Tang album that I'm tuned into. Interesting. And eventually what happened was I started reading The Source every month. I didn't miss an issue for like four years. We got high speed internet at the house. So I'm like downloading a whole bunch of music and really doing the research and studying as much as I can and uh, absorbing as much as I can by osmosis. And I had written my first rap when I was in the sixth grade when I was 11. And then as I got older, uh, I started to take it a little bit more seriously and become a little bit more passionate about it. And then when I got to high school, I was involved in this spoken word program. It was an after-school program with like dozens of kids. And like I think the first year I did it, it was over a hundred kids were in it. And found other people who were in the hip-hop. They were putting me on to Company Flow. They were putting me on to Chino XL and cast and Mad Villainy and all of these really dope underground hip-hop artists. From around the world and from here. So, you know, that was, I was listening to Typical Cats for the first time, and I was listening to to Vakil for the first time, and the Moleman compilations, and Gravel Pit, which was Matlock and Rusty Chains, and Juice, and all of that stuff really. If I, if I were to look back on it, kind of informed what it was I valued as a rapper. So then, obviously, the next step was I'm either writing like Nas, if I'm being introspective, yeah. I'm writing like Big L when I want to get into yeah, that battle rap yeah. bag. Or I'm well, writing like, you know, I'll listen to music I made when I was 14, whatever I've decided to keep because the rest of it is gone because I can't listen to it without cringing (laughs) but I'll listen to certain joints and I'll be like oh okay like this was my ghost face bag this was my Raekwon bag this these were the different people I was listening to and studying and really trying to even like my immortal technique bag trying to see what I could do in order to you know I think emulate right you emulate before you innovate as an MC so I was trying to I was trying on a bunch of styles to see what would fit and it took a long time but that kind of is what kept me going just the pursuit of Elevation really trying to craft.
0: Master craft. yeah yeah what did you said that you you mentioned about like what you value as a rapper like in rapping like what are those things like what are the kind of elements like introspection honesty punchline quality like what is it
2: Um, I think I used to be somebody who was really into like punchlines, internal rhyming and all that. And then I think a thing that I had to grow up and realize, and actually something Woods said once shifted this perspective for me too. He said, if you look at talent, everybody is given a different blade, right? So some people have like this huge broadsword. And I'm thinking of people like Crooked Eye and Joel Ortiz and Royce the Five Nine and Lupe Fiasco and Mickey Fax. And they, you got to keep that blade sharp. Some people have, maybe it's a pocket knife, but if you keep that blade sharp, then that's all you need to do in order to be good at rapping. So, for example, what makes Too Short a great rapper might not necessarily be what makes Mickey Fax a great rapper. So even if the criteria is different, you can still acknowledge greatness when you hear it. And yes. there's also a Coltrane quote, which is, uh, you can play a shoestring if you're sincere. And that's something else that's kind of driven how I've looked at things as well, where it's just like, and obviously I appreciate rappers who are able to find interesting cadences and pockets who say interesting things, rappers who have unique voices, rappers who are able to articulate certain complex emotions in ways that we might not have encountered before as listeners. But I rock with everything, man. As long as it's made well, I, I mess with it. And I've been uh, like this week, I've been really on my commutes to and from work studying like career crooks, Zilla album with. Oh, that's such a good record. Fire. Such a good record. Never at Peace. Really dope. Vegas Vic by Zilla Crazy. But I've been studying that right along to next to like the future self-titled album or Hendrix or uh, the songs I really love from the Lil Baby album, from the deluxe edition of the Lil Baby album and Wayne and Megan Estallion and Sierra Wack and Samira Truth. The I got bands for the Moon Landing album, which is crazy. Love that. So and Makami as well. Really, just trying to sit down, listen to music, absorb what I can by osmosis, and then when it's time for me to produce stuff, after consuming so much, I think it comes out in the work.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, I like I like that idea of. uh pocket blade versus the broad blade because at the end of the day i it all depends on the listener but i don't particularly care if a a particular artist doesn't do or doesn't try to even like do a million different things in their music but they just do a couple things or one thing really well Mm -hmm. i'll go to them for that thing i'm not thinking oh but you can't make a club banger for me it's like i don't care I'm, i'm looking for something. And if you can do all of it, that's cool. But it doesn't even really, I'm a particular person that I like to, I don't need everything from an artist. And sometimes in most of the time, honestly, I feel like that's a big problem in more of like the mainstream circles is that people try to do too much and they spread themselves thin where they're like not playing to their strengths. And it's like, you can tell either they're chasing a bag or they're doing something that someone told them to do, but they're not, they're not doing what they even probably want to do. And you can tell, yeah you made that radios hit and that's that's trash it's not because you're a bad rapper it's because you don't even want to do this song mm. and i can tell and i can that sincerity thing i can tell you don't care about this song and it's like i don't like that that's not that's not good music
2: yeah yeah and i would argue that it's happening in the underground too it's not just it's not just the mainstream anymore mm. i think there are so many different avenues that have removed a lot of the roadblocks that the industry put up between people and the ability to record and release music. Yeah. So there are people in the underground too, who, you know, it's like, you've been making the same album for X amount of years. Why would I tune in? I want to hear like, that's really kind of, for me, maybe that's what I value as an artist is either you're, you can do the same thing, but you always find a different way to do it. Or, um, you know every project that you release has a different intention or a different concept or theme and motif behind it mm-hmm. so that i'm i'm tuned in so i think about i've been listening to freddie gibbs for 13 years and the content has kind of changed slightly as his life has changed yeah slightly but, yeah i can see that yeah but it's not altogether entirely different from what he was doing back when the miseducation of freddie gibbs dropped the only mm-hmm. difference is he's trying more things as a rapper right yeah. so like he's he might have been rapping about the same stuff for the past 13 years with you know some exceptions but he's innovated how he's done it the producers he's worked with the way he structures his songs so then that keeps him interesting he can continue to rap about the same stuff and it'll keep him interesting versus yeah, I mean, there are just some rappers where it's the same approach, same subject matter. Yeah, same, same sound, music. yeah. And it's not it's not as interesting. I would rather go listen to Future at that point. I would rather go listen to Young Thug at that point. I would rather go listen to people who, even if they fall flat on their face on some songs, are able to strike gold with other songs because they're not afraid to just try something out and see if it works.
0: Yeah, this is something I was talking with Doof last, uh, last week when I interviewed him about Doom. Obviously, Doom is a guy that like had even if you take away all of the crazy concepts and his like all that shit at its core, most of the time, Doom was being Doom on every record, but they all sound very intentionally different. And Mm there's something else. And a lot of times it's simple. He just linked up with another producer. And I find like that's something that I just don't know. I kind of question to your same point, like, why do why don't rappers try to to go for a different sound. You can keep everything the same. You can have the same content. I really appreciate it a lot of times when people just go on a different s- sound and I'm like, damn, that good. that's really good. Freddie Gibbs is a perfect example. Makes a really, really trap, classic, like really modern feeling uh, with the, the blurred out bass with Kenny Beats. I fucking love that record. It's such a fun album. And then he drops Bandana. Like <laughs> just, and but it's still Freddie Gibbs. He's still being Freddie Gibbs, being charismatic. The similar content but yeah I, I totally I totally mess with that thought
1: I have no epiphanies for you nothing poetic or prettier for you nothing to not hide in a simile or an award-winning aesthetic symmetry for you telling kid that this authority is coming from having to live it or witnessing for you and some of them say to me look mr Levin, 20 other teachers did this before you
0: you know for one one thing I want to get into before we get into any of the music you've dropped is that uh from what i understand after you released your uh damn Your grown project in 2015 you took a pretty significant step back from music you you got a master's in education you focused on teaching mm-hmm. you got engaged big 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 milestone as well mm-hmm. why did you feel like you needed to take this time off and and in hindsight are you glad you did it
2: so i don't think it was a conscious decision to take time off to be honest with you i think there were so there were a few things that have happened. And I appreciate that question and I, I've been really trying to think about it a little bit more past year or so but one of the things I've I think was I expected damn near grown to do more than it did considering mm. the features and the production credits and that was my attempt to make a, a, a like I feel like a phrase such as middle of the road implies mediocrity. And I wasn't trying to make anything mediocre. I was trying to make something great, but I wanted something that was going to be able to catch as many people as possible. And I worked on it for seven years. That's when I would gotten the first beat from it. I invested more money in it than I'd ever invested in my music before. And people talked about it people rocked with it. We had my, then girlfriend and now wife had without really telling me. And she was the one who was a major driving force behind my even putting that album out because I was about to quit. I was just disillusioned and I thought the game had passed me up. So she had like made hats that we wound up selling and wound up selling out of on the band camp, And that kind of made me feel like a lot was possible and at the same time, I was not. It, it wasn't that I was not writing. I stayed writing that whole time. You know, before Damn Near Grown even came out, I was working on stuff for Trapdoor. But I think it was more so just trying to take my time and be intentional with what I was creating because before I tried to make something with a whole bunch of other people in mind, and it just didn't work the way that I thought it was going to work. So instead, I just wanted to really take what I was doing seriously and sharpen it to the best of my ability before I started putting music out there again. Mm. Okay. And
0: uh, so you were saying, you just mentioned that you were actually thinking of quitting at one point. Like, Mm -hmm. did this, did this, so you're saying it wasn't much of a conscious break. Did you ever actually seriously think that, like, even after maybe like a year in because that was like 2015, a year in or so, like, did you actually think this is this could be it? Like, I've released my music. I've moved on to this teaching career. I have a, a wife now, like music is over for me. Like that actually came as a real thought to you?
1: Uh, no, mainly
2: because I think what I have since learned is that music is my way of staying sane. So I'm going to what, walk around with all of these bars in my head all of the time and and not write them down, you know, mm-hmm. and, and then I'm gonna record the songs but not release them. That just doesn't, what purpose does that serve really? Because in my mind, once you've made your art public, it should probably remain public. So apart from there's music I'm not proud of that, you know, it's kind of like, all right, keep that in the cut but yeah I mean I think I had gotten to a point where m- on multiple occasions I just was not reaping the, the benefits of the music mm-hmm. and I think it was because I was wrestling with the same thing that a lot of artists wrestle with which is you know who even cares yeah. if I stop making music tomorrow you know nobody's gonna be upset or frustrated with that but it also did not stop the fact that i kept writing raps like at this point i've been doing it for damn near two-thirds of my life so why would i stop especially if i can continue to surprise myself i still love it i still love making it and the only way i have actually quit was would be if i stopped loving it if I stopped wanting to do it, if it started to feel, if everything I did started to feel forced, and if I ran out of things to say that were interesting, then I think at that point, it'd be time to hang it up. But, you know, as I grow up and as I experience more and more of life, I think I'm grateful that I'm still rapping because I have this healthy way to kind of process these experiences and put them in the hands of people who might find what i have to say useful
0: yeah and when you say that you've been rapping for a long time like two-thirds of your life um what i find pretty great and like really i don't know reassuring or just inspiring is that i know that especially with trapdoor like you've recorded a lot of those songs like actually you wrote it much long much earlier in the past like five years ago let's say but um the music you've released in 2021 specifically, like it just seems to be that you're rapping the best you ever had. Mm. Um, and I find this is something that we're starting to see just kind of generally in hip hop, as kind of like some of the best artists in the game have progressed into their middle ages. I guess you could say, like people like Black Dot, who's like mm. 50, <laughs> Jay-Z. LP, Rock Marciano, who really is the poster child of like, he only really became huge well into his Um, Mm thirties. One question I have is like, how have you been able to consistently improve and achieve this longevity of like consistent improvement? And then what do you think this trend of terrific music coming from our our, uh, middle-aged rappers, what do you think that says about like the health of the game?
2: I think it's a variety of things. So I think, As far as me personally, I think it comes from loving rap music and loving when it's done well and being obsessed with the craft. And, you know, part of why I'm a battle rap nerd is because even if a lot of those dudes kind of rap similarly, there are a handful of them who not only do they rap very distinctly, but they rap damn near better than anybody else on the planet. So I'm always gonna be tapped on tapped into people who are rapping incredibly well because I'm passionate about the craft and teaching workshops as well which I've been doing for nearly 10 years um, Ad Two and I who co-host a show on vans called Rec shop Live and shout out to add to who's still one of the one of the people from Chicago too who, who showed us that we could make it without the industry who had an independent hustle and still does not have a manager and has been out here going off and making moves for the past 15 years now, probably. But yeah, I mean, he, like being around younger rappers, hearing what they're into, listening to it, and then just kind of checking my ego and reminding myself that hip hop didn't stop it, you know, enter the Wu-Tang. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like it keeps evolving and it keeps turning into something different. And the bar is raised with every generation because I'm 32, right? So when I was in my formative years as a rapper, I was listening to not only all of this stuff that came before, but all of this stuff that was out from the message by Grandmaster Flash and Furious Five all the way up to at that point, I think that was, if we're talking the mid 2000s, like Dipset, you know? Yeah. And then the MCs who are coming up after us now have all of that stuff, plus what was current when I was their age, plus what was current years after that, plus what's current now. and access to all different kinds of hip hop that they can make. So I think that really constantly trying to build with like-minded MCs and learn from everybody I study has been what has kept me going and I think has kept me fresh and also leaning into what it is I do best and trying to add things to the skill set and trying to eliminate things that become redundancies. And I think that a lot of rappers who are kind of hitting their stride as well are guys like Rock Marciano and, and Ransom and 38 Spech, who were people who were involved in the music industry, who I remember reading about in Double XL. Yeah, in the early 2000s. Who, yeah or or people who were and who are on mixtapes that were really popular who i think just at a certain point were like okay so if there's a market for what it is we do why are we continuing to chase the same market that drake is going after that doesn't make any sense let's just make the stuff that we are really good at and people are going to flock to it so yeah, yeah. I, I think i i attribute that to the lessons that they learned from people like Doom and Sean Price too, who had second acts in their careers where they just kind of leaned into the stuff that they did best as MCs and people bought into it and kept coming back for it. So, yeah, I think that that's what I attributed to. And also just we're not all competing for the same fan base of, you know, the X amount of people who are super into the mainstream hip hop. The world, yeah. the world is the market. Mm-hmm. With the proliferation of the internet and all that. So, my intention, if just speaking from personal experience, is every project out, I'm trying to find five new diehard fans. That's it, and then just kind of pull them into the flock because each of them are going to go out and pull in more fans and more fans and more fans, and just so on and so forth. So as long as I'm consistent in terms of the quality of what I'm releasing. And as long as I'm not, um, sacrificing quality for quantity, then it's pretty much inertia from there until I feel like I don't want to do it anymore.
0: Yeah. Like doubling down on and like finding what you do well, and just kind of honing in onto that and leaning into that is what we see from artists like you rock Marciano and like people like Willie, the kid, I'm thinking, hmm. I hope I'm getting it not mixed up, but. I remember no, Willie, I was listening to dedication, one of the dedication Wayne records. And I was like, that can't be Willie the kid.
1: Yeah.
2: He I was, was like, on is this...
0: cannon. Yeah, And I was like, what the fuck is going on? And then I like was like, I was unaware. This was a, a few months ago. I wasn't unaware that he had all this career in the past. And he's also a guy that I really, I really fucking love, but it's, it's so clear that they found what they did well, like with the Marciano that, that really like cool vibe he gives and like the, that cool nonchalance shit that only he can do Mm -hmm. even on marsberg i i don't feel like he even has that level he's still rapping a little more like you would hear him on one of those like early 2000s cuts with the un Mm -hmm. but ever since reloaded on that's where his career started to to kind of exponentially grows because he he found what he did well and he's like i'm not i don't need to have drums that's one part but it's like i don't even need to rap with any any kind of like muster in my voice, like I can, I can just talk and people are going to love this because I'm fucking cool. And yeah. he was right. Like, yeah.
2: And I say yeah. cool shit.
0: Yeah. It's and right. I say it's cool shit. And that's what I'm going to, I'm appeal to, Uh, you know, battle rapping too. This is something I found really cool. Cause I've been seeing you talk about this on the timeline on Twitter recently, and mm. you actually participated in a Twitter spaces talk on this and that's competition in hip hop. Yep. This is something I find really interesting because it kind of even extends outside of just the hip hop discussion. It's kind of just a general thing where I find like competition, they always say like it breeds like innovation it like breeds like people like working on their craft. But some people view competition, especially with the art scene as kind of like a, a negative thing. It puts people against each other and it could be perceived as like, um, being like a negative confrontational kind of environment. And I find that interesting in the context of hip hop with its huge foundations based on just like a competitive spirit Mm -hmm. Um, and like having to find a kind of like not be searching for validation, but still trying to like hone your craft. Like how do you balance the competitive spirit while also like kind of being at peace with like who you are and, and understanding that like people do different things?
2: I mean, the competitive nature of it used to intimidate me for sure. And I think I used to let this idea of measuring my skill against somebody else's kind of bleed over mm. um, into the business side of things. So if I wasn't making as much money off of the music or I wasn't getting the opportunities as everybody else. But I felt like I was rapping as good as they were, if not better Then I think that built a lot of resentment up. Um But I think as far as one of the as far as the competitiveness and being able to maintain good relationships while also keeping that healthy spirit of competition. um, Listening to Styles P interviews where he talks about working with the locks and he talks about Jada and Sheik and how every time he goes into the studio, he's there to have the best verse on the song. He doesn't want to say that they bodied him on that. And they're, but they have worked together and had maybe the, the most solid creative partnership in hip hop. Never heard stories about them beefing, never heard stories yeah. about falling out, never heard stories about them even having tension with one another. So those guys, those three in particular, I think in hearing that it was like, okay, cool. I can want to, go in the lab and body somebody on a song, but that doesn't mean that I don't wanna see them win. It doesn't mean that I don't want them to be able to make money off of something that they love. And really the only time that that sharper edge enters into the equation when I feel kind of like legitimately pissed or angry or frustrated tends to be with people who would rather destroy than build something. -hmm. And especially when there are people who are, you know, doing it from a place of resentment and trying to actively derail careers from that place. And that at that point is where the competitive nature of this steps into like a different sphere of emotion. Yeah. Yeah. But 98 to 99% of the time, when I'm being competitive with a friend of mine, it's because it would be for the same reason that I would want to beat them in a game of pickup basketball. It's not that I don't want them to be okay. It's just that in this particular case, I want to top whatever they are doing. Yeah. So
0: no, that's good that, yeah, I find that that like idea of keeping, like a foundational kind of like understanding that this is not yeah not to like destroy you but it's just to in the love of improving your craft i think that's key
1: reality collapsed and all i saw was music marks a youth left larger boot than walking in my father's shoes did i was innocent enough to call my mother's muses synapses snapping my body in the awkward movement spoken look at what i wrote and buy me lunch i broke annotated printer paper pages of lyrics stuffed the quotes quoted verses to each other till we wrote enough of our own i was on the phone spent solely communicating the song
0: you know i know in the interest of time i know we were talking about two thirty or one thirty for you whatever you wanted to uh you had to do some things but i do and would be remiss if we don't talk quickly about some of these other hefty collaborations you had this year because mm-hmm. you really like I said released some crazy work uh you had the scenic deluxe with Nick arcade as we discussed and the the we distract we uh addressed the sea with our names with August fanon I want to at least talk about the fanon record as your most recent one this was seemingly this was your first time on vinyl too if I'm not mistaken yeah. right yeah. The filth records yeah, yeah. I mean, That's not a my big milestone.
2: My first time on vinyl is the headlining artist. I've been on the yeah couple as the headliner Vinyl is a rapper, but as like a yeah. guest artist. But this was yeah the first Def C vinyl. Yes.
0: Yeah, and so this one was a Star Wars graffiti inspired record. Had mm-hmm. beautiful production from Fanon and just incredible imagery from you as a rapper. And what I loved the most about what you did with this record was that I, as someone who's not too in tune with graffiti culture, like wanted kind of like put me into that world, gave me some information generally, but I really liked how you connected hip hop writing to graffiti tagging and like the parallels because they just make instant sense and the way you explored it, I think was really special. Um, So could you give us like your perspective on why graffiti is so important and
2: intertwined in uh, hip hop culture? I mean, graffiti is the first element that appeared before turntablism before breaking before hip hop and there were obviously in all of those different elements there were there were prototypical sides of that that were coming out before we acknowledged them as such but graffiti was the first element of hip hop to really emerge and be something that was a part of the conversation mm-hmm. so you know and it it predates and I, and I know that um it does all start with the DJ, so I don't want to disrespect or discount Cool Herc's contribution at the corners of Sedgwick and Cedar and August 11th, 1973, when the first block party was played. And that's the real birth of hip hop. But in terms of individual elements, you know, graffiti was all over the city of New York before that block party happened. And I am always in awe of those graffiti writers who take certain risks, but also try to build community and and try to teach kids to harness those gifts as a way of expressing themselves because it's difficult for them to express themselves in other ways. And some of my favorite rappers of all time started as graffiti writers and then transitioned into rapping and took those transferable skills from graffiti writing like an eye for imagery into what they did as mcs and made shit that was amazing and innovative and forward-thinking so yeah it's my admiration for graffiti definitely runs deep and part of what i tried to do on that ep was imagine my cadences as graffiti pieces so that that's amazing yeah so that it was when i was rhyming it you wouldn't know where it was going at first you might not be able to guess what the next move would be but by the time the verse was over you had a complete picture of what i was trying to do
0: man i feel it i actually that's when you say that it's clicking like i'm thinking of uh uh the last track which i think is my favorite one of the best songs maybe the, my favorite song by you It's just and it's that first line that you say, I'm forgetting it. But I remember just being so captivated by like the immediacy to where it's like, where the fuck is this going? Like you immediately brought me into some vision, some picture. And by the end of it, we get it. And it's just, yeah, it's very heartfelt. And uh, love of language is just is just seeping through that track. It's, it's uh, yeah, it's beautiful. And the, the fanon beat too. Wow. like Yeah. Wow. <laughs> that one was the
2: perfect touch. Fanon is brilliant, yeah. And I I think people like him and Small Pro and Messiah Music are are and knows the time. Sev Severe, Golden Beats, On God, Slime are really kind of the future of the funk. Nick Arcade, they're they're the people who are making beats that are amazing to listen to. And I know that they're all kind of people who are within my circle. So there are definitely people like Twami and Grey Matter and um, who are outside of that circle, who are doing really cool, innovative stuff too, that I just want to listen to every time I get a chance. Mm -hmm. But they are drawing from the same wells of inspiration that a lot of other producers have drawn from but they're using that to then create a sound that's a lot more fertile and a lot more interesting than those producers who just try to replicate what those legends did well yeah so i'm and i'm incredibly lucky to have worked with Fanon. that was a connection to bring it back to iceberg theory that was a connection iceberg made happen actually uh in this i haven't really spoken about this, but initially the verse that's on 50 on Trapdoor was the verse that was on Violets and Honey originally. So like the first time I'd rapped on a Fanon beat, it was the 50 verse. And then it looked like that song wasn't going to come out. So then I threw it on that beat from Messiah and it happened to just match perfectly. And then I wrote a new joint for Violets and Honey when it looked like that song was in fact going to come out. So yeah. And then I reached out to iceberg and I said, Do you think Fanon would be willing to work with me on something? And Iceberg said, Yeah, absolutely. He liked your verse on this and it was on from there.
0: That's dope, man. And I'm glad it happened. Because that that one felt like yeah. And then when we get to trapdoor, like it just seemed like there was a new level that's ascended. That's what I keep saying. This year I just feel like there was a new something on was was tapped in that was just so strong. Uh, but I do want to get to this record and a big component of this trapdoor release is that it's the first record under Backwoods as a as a new st- uh, signee. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me how the Backwoods crew influenced the release in any significant way and maybe the end product that ended up being trapdoor?
2: Uh, yeah, but I think if if I want to talk about the backwoods influence, I think that dates back to when I first heard Woods and Elucid. So I heard Elucid's album produced by AM Breakup's super yeah. ill producer. Super and that dope. album under the name Cult Favorite called for Mad Men Only Fire. I loved the Woods verse on there. And then from there, I was just kind of hooked and, and kept, well, not even kind of hooked. I was definitely hooked. And I was just tuned into everything that they were doing after that. So then you had Dour Candy. i have gone back and checked out History Will Absolve Me. And the music that they put out on that label and the people who were in that universe were people who I just tried to build with because they were super dope and they made music that spoke to me and spoke to what I was trying to do as a rapper. So obviously people like Castro, albums like Little Robert Hutton, and fidel and everything in between super influential stuff i really loved um prem rock and woods came to town and they were on the bill for my first and only to this date nope not only on my first headlining show it was woods and prem rock and tomorrow kings and just being able to kind of chop it up with them and, and kick it was a great experience and yeah, I think that the influence that that music has had on me has been really, really impactful, elevated what I do as a writer, given me different benchmarks to hit as an artist too. You know, So if I can't make anything that's as good as load-bearing crow's feet, why try? If I can't make anything that's as good as haram, why try? If I can't make anything as good as little Robert Hutton, why try? And then just really trying to make music that is on par with that standard as often as I possibly can. But the conversations about this album and bringing it to Backwoods happened that weekend when Woods was in town. Or no, that wasn't even a weekend. That was the middle of the week when Woods Mm -hmm. was in town for that show. And I played him a few of the joints that I did over the, Messiah beats and he was into it. And I asked him if he'd be interested in putting it out. He said he was and then through various stages of completion over the years, uh, he remained true to his commitment to putting the album out. And by the time we wrapped it, it had six years had passed. And he still remained committed to putting it out and having those conversations and making sure that people heard it. So yeah,
0: there's definitely a lot of yeah dedication and kind of the trust that that sounds like it was just very much he trusted you trusted the vision that this would be something worth putting out on the label cuz that they obviously at this point have a pretty significant quality standard that everybody expects once it has the backwood stamp
2: and and this year in particular yeah the the fielded drops are really dope yeah she's super fire they started the year with an album that Alchemist produced and then it was, which is Haram and pray for Haiti are my top two of the year. Definitely. Hmm. And then from there, it was like, you know, again, it was like a, uh, it was like a card game. It was, you know, okay. Who's going to have the winning hand this go around and people just kept putting out quality material that load bearing crow's feet is so good man that's a feast that's a feast of an album um musically and and writing wise as well and then castro's joint was so grand in scale and addressed so many things but his style is so sharp yeah that you just can't help but be engaged by it and then by the time you're able to get past how addicted you are to what he's doing stylistically with his delivery to hear what he's saying is crazy too. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's been a pretty amazing year for Backwoods. I, all I wanted to do was provide an entry into their catalog that was worth the reputation and the lineage of that label. I feel like I did that and it's, been a very rewarding experience to have worked so closely with them over the past several years to make this happen and i got an arm and hammer feature on my shit so i can't you know i'm good you know what i mean that's like a major bucket list thing (laughs) yeah so
0: yeah trapdoor feels very very um feels very personal to me Mm -hmm. it it gives me this feeling like I'm hearing secrets or like personal stories that you previously tucked away and hadn't shared publicly, let's say. And it's as if this album was like you exercising demons or emotions and also like paving a way, showing a way forward um, to people that that will come after you, maybe particularly your, your new child. Like that's that's that comes to mind, giving that very significant life event for you. And when I think of the title, I think of Trapdoor, Rick. It's called Trapdoor. It's like opening the trapdoor in your mind, releasing some secrets or experiences. So, what is the significance behind this title? And as we spoke about intentionality, like what is the, what was your overall intention behind this record?
2: Um, I mean, your explanation of it is way better than mine in terms of the title. But I like the contradictory nature of that word trap door, where a trap is designed to keep you in one place for a specific set amount of time, if not forever. And then a door is supposed to be something that you can easily traverse to get into and out of different spaces. And so this album, the, the content and the things I'm addressing is from I was first emailing and communicating with Messiah about the music right up until the birth of my child two and a half months ago less than that so it's been there's been so much life that's been lived and there have been so many lessons that i've learned and one of the things i learned is that there are certain mindsets i've had that i thought were going to be very liberating that wound up being very constricting so the idea of a song like Muscle on its face is about resilience, but actually it's about pretending to be resilient when you really should be relying on other people to help you get through something. Wow. Difficult for you. That's Um, That's really powerful. A song like Post and how also a song like Muscle too is very specific, I think, to men my age. And then a song like Post where Having a kid has made me incredibly optimistic. And at the same time, I don't want to get so caught up in that optimism that I'm not realistic about the world that my kid's about to enter into. And then everything in between. So that's kind of what I've been thinking about. The title just kind of came to me it wasn't really intentional it just in going back and listening to listening to the music. Cause I, the title was the Institute of living. Um, and which is a mental health facility in Connecticut, where my dad grew up and he told me about it. And then I went back and I researched it and I found out that they were kind of implicated in a bunch of very shady things. So things like, you know, the, uh, electroshock therapy oh shit they they were they were doing things like and they've since you know this has been entirely changed and and this particular thing was them being misled by the catholic church but they were the ones they were one of the facilities that housed catholic priests who were accused of molestation and things of that nature under the guise of psychiatric treatment and i just didn't want to put a name like that Onto a project of mine, I felt like it made sense for that song, but I didn't feel like it made sense for the album as a whole. Yeah, yeah. So, in going back and kind of listening to the stuff that I developed, trapdoor just kind of came to my head like that. And then, as I revisited the music, the word trapdoor made so much sense in terms of that again, uh, seemingly um, oxymoronic juxtaposition of those
0: two words and that's beautiful that's beautiful Mm -hmm. and uh you know you have this powerful line at the end of uh small commutes where you say uh therapy or surgery either way you've got to open up or that one way to one way toward the exit but it's blocked by what you won't confront Mm -hmm. i find that shit like fucking just punch me in the face like i was like again the way you've like just ascended to this ability to where like just two bars can like sum up an entire thought, like so concise. I love that. But specifically about the content, I feel like this line. And then a lot, it's a very common theme and motif or whatever is just being honest with yourself, like looking in the mirror and like really being like, who am I, what am I doing? What am I actually like muscle, the way you described that's like, what am I actually doing here? Mm -hmm. And, you know, given the long recording process of, of seven plus years to create this, like, Was it hard in a way to make? And did it feel almost therapeutic once you actually got to this point where you are able to divulge so much of you into
2: the music? I think it was therapeutic to write it. The, The verse that was the hardest to write was 50, but that was because I was writing it originally to that beat from Fanon, and I knew that I had to make sure that my raps on there could stand up with the people like Westside Gunn and Makami and Iceberg Theory who rapped on his work before. But I think for me, the writing wasn't the difficult part because writing has kind of always been how I've processed things. The difficult part was recording like the back third of that album or the, the middle third. I forget which it is, but songs like basically, songs like Time Off, songs like 50, songs like um, Commute. Hmm. Like those three songs in particular, it's difficult because it's one thing to write the words and it's another to say them and feel them. And those are three songs that address experiences I've had that have been really crushing in a variety of different ways. And even in them, those experiences being crushing for me The thing that it's even more difficult is it's it's even it has even more of a crushing impact on people who are directly affected by those incidents yeah so the people who i cite in the hook for commute it's one thing for me to be grieving their loss but it's another thing entirely for the people who are closer to them or for them on time off as much as I struggled with that job and going to work at it and coming home, I still got to come home at the end of the day. Those kids didn't get to come home.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And a lot of them still are not home. So it, it was difficult to be able to bear the weight of those experiences as I was recording those three songs in particular. And 50 was a difficult song to record because I was determined to get it all in one take. So, Damn. you know, if I was messing up on the fifth bar, I had to go back, start from the beginning, and then a song like that specifically, I can't, you know, it has to be the same emotion every time. I can't phone in something like that. You, Yeah, absolutely. So to have to do that over and over and over and over and over again at a certain point was, It was just, it was a lot. It was a lot. So those were the three songs I think I had the most difficulty recording. I think there are some other emotions that are not as difficult for me to convey. So like I can rap better than you is not difficult for me to convey. Uh, Anger at the powers that be, not that difficult for me to convey. Things like sarcasm and all that, not that difficult, but I think those three songs in terms of the emotion that I was expressing on them was nuanced in a way that is difficult to express even in conversation, let alone rapping. So those were the three songs that were definitely the most difficult to record for this album.
1: Hearts of gold in a war chest. Pulse pumping out a polar vortex. Self-care's like a hymn for the tone deaf. Listen from the inside, it howls at my doorstep. Freddy Krueger claws for the prayer hands. The world's smallest violinist in an airband. Share a smile from a stranger. Blood on the smock wave, hide to the neighbors. Hiding in the wild with a razor. Sliding through your savior.
0: And another like big theme about this record is is um, passing down wisdom, is teaching. And obviously you are a teacher and i found what i really liked about how you did this incorporated these kind of topics into the music is that it kind of fits into the to that trapdoor theme in the sense that as i was saying earlier it's like on one hand you're you're really like divulging a lot of personal experiences and it's kind of therapeutic on one end for you but in a way you are helping others who are listening to this and then it leads to the direct references of actually teaching that you talk about on this record um And it's obviously something that you've dedicated huge parts of your life to doing. Like, why do you find it so important to, to kind of speak and, and pass down, uh, knowledge to those coming, um, coming after you and what kind of gaps do you see currently in like how kids are kind of being treated in the modern day education system in the States?
2: So, uh, great questions. So something that. A friend of mine told me freshman year of college that was really important. I was, I don't know, I was probably rambling about hip hop stuff because I was the only one in my friend group who was super into underground stuff. And that's something that I always kind of know background information about people. And he told me, like, you need to become a teacher. If you don't become a teacher, this knowledge is not going to be worthwhile to anybody but you. And that stuck in my head. I always wanted to be a teacher from the time I was 17 because I had a mentor named Peter Kahn, who taught me in poetry and then wound up mentoring me as a teacher when I nice. grew up, who whose example I wanted to pay forward because it came very much from a place of empathy and compassion while also being realistic about the things I would need to know in order to navigate life after high school. And somebody like that, the best thing you can do to pay them back is to pay them forward. So. I knew I wanted to be a teacher, but I I don't know that I had a greater purpose as a teacher until that friend of mine said that. And then that just stuck in the back of my head. And I did work either within education or adjacent to education from the time I graduated college in 2012 through the present day. And I mean, it's important because for one reason, education in the United States, and I don't know that this is much different from Canada or England or any other Western countries really. We do a pretty terrible job of changing with the times. So a lot of the ways in which instruction is delivered has changed. A lot of curriculum has has changed but the structure of our school systems has not changed. Mm. So it's still like, has, we're still operating within the same structure that was developed over a hundred years ago. And we still are teaching the same things in the exact same ways. But you can't do that. <laughs> Cause yeah. you, also were, you also were trained to strictly educate white kids hundred yeah. years ago. Cause those were the only kids who were allowed to have a public education in this country. Mm-hmm. So in addition to, in addition to that, I think the other gaps that kids tend to face is you have teachers who are around at the beginning of this generational turnover who are now either who are now kind of nearing retirement age, but The kids are looking to develop relationships with teachers first so that they can trust that they're not gonna be taken advantage of or treated unfairly before they're willing to just accept the authority of the person at the front of the classroom. Mm -hmm. So that's one major thing. And then obviously we in the United States do not address how institutional racism informs educational practice and we just kind of I don't know we I, we've been putting a band-aid over you know a, a deep incision for a long time and pretending that it works and mm-hmm. we haven't been proactive we've been reactive we haven't been honest about how trauma impacts how kids learn we haven't been honest about how mental illness impacts how kids learn and We also haven't really been honest with kids. There are certain things that we've demonized in terms of behaviors that the kids might engage in outside of school. But we're not realistic about how is it really all that possible to talk a kid out of a negative behavior if they haven't truly suffered the consequences of it yet? Yeah. And then how do you accept that student for who they are while you're still kind of encouraging them to grow at the same time? And then how do you deal with the fact that they're not gonna learn what it is you want them to learn until they experience a consequence of it? Or there may be students who have experienced the consequence of certain things, and that's hardened them to that consequence, so then they're not afraid of it anymore. So there's like a bunch of stuff going on in education that um, I feel like is not being addressed or is starting to be addressed, which is great, but it hasn't been really institutionalized to the extent that it could be helpful for the kids now and especially in light of COVID. I think we, this is the metaphor and I've been using for the past year and a half, two years, but um. yeah, I mean, we acted like it was one long snow day and then we came back and we had the same academic expectations of these students in spite of the fact that some of them actually most of them have been traumatized by being home for a year and a half during the pandemic by the fact that there were so many kids who lost loved ones. There were kids who were on social media all the time, which is an entirely different conversation about the role that social media plays in interrupting public education. But, um, you know, they were not going to class consistently because they were taking classes from home or, the things that they were able to escape that was at home by being in school were the things that they were fully immersed in because they were learning remotely. So just there are like a whole bunch of different things within public education that are not being addressed. And every school is different. Every school district is different. Every state is different. And then it's just an incredibly, and that's, when you're considering the bureaucracy of public education that's before even considering the fact that every student is different Mm -hmm. so it's it's definitely been for me a lot about the serenity prayer of changing what i can and accepting what i can't and just trying to keep it moving from there
0: do you find like as someone in the in the actual work you're like do you find the trend is like slowly we're going in a right direction. Like I, I, as an outsider to all of this, I see like this stupid critical race theory discussion, which is like, I don't even really understand like how the states and like this political discussion is, it just seems right. like, what are you even talking about? And that worries me. I'm like, is this actually on the
2: table? Are we so part- actually talking like this? Like this First is insane. All, crit- critical race theory, just to correct this, critical race theory is something that's specifically taught in law schools. It was something that was founded in law it, at Harvard Law School, I believe, Harvard's yeah. Law School that yeah. was taught to law students. There are elements of critical race theory that might show up in curricula that's taught when we're discussing race in high schools, but critical race theory is not taught in high schools in the United
0: Yeah, States. it's very much a law-based, legal-based trying to yeah. like, and it makes sense why it's taught there because it, it's important to know, but
2: yeah. Yeah, like, and kids are, kids like you know how many Latin terms you gotta learn in law school before you even get to critical race theory? Shit is crazy. Yeah. So then I look at that. I look at the banning of all of these books. I look at I, you know, it's a it's a state-by-state state thing. I think another thing that states are struggling with as well, and something that American public education and a lot of other countries public education systems have been struggling with for a long time is um, this idea of data as a predictor of academic success as opposed to a more holistic approach to addressing students' social emotional needs so that they're in a clear enough headspace that they can learn.
0: Mm
2: -hmm. Um, I mean, there's just, there's so many different conversations that are happening and you'd you'd get a headache wrestling with two of them, but there are so many that you pretty much as an educator just kind of have to deal with the young people who are in front of them who are in front of you and, and what they need. Yeah. And if you're addressing those needs even if you're only reaching one kid in each class you're doing something right.
0: Yeah. You no, never... I think that's a good that's a good uh, mentality. You can kind of apply it to a lot of things where if you feel like everything's out of your control then it's better to just try to think about what's in your control and just do move the needle, even if it's just
2: one kid, like you said,
0: like that's important. And
2: let's, and let's be honest here too. I think, um, I'm a white teacher who was trained by a university to teach white kids. We didn't really talk about race all that much. So except for when we were bringing, except for like when I was bringing the conversation up, Hmm. So now that race and conversations about race are entering classrooms, white parents are panicking. There are white parents who, who know that they're panicking because they know that if their kids learn the truth, then the kids are going to start questioning a whole lot of foundational stuff at home. Hmm. And then there are white parents who are freaking out, don't know why they're freaking out, but are just parroting other bullshit reasons for why they should be freaking out over the fact that we're talking about racism in schools. Yeah, yeah. Like, it, it's basically, it's, if we were teaching Holocaust denial at the rate with which, and I'm, this is me saying this as a Jew, because I don't want anyone to get it misconstrued. Mm-hmm. Um, If, if we, we're preaching Holocaust denial in the same ways in which they're trying to deny racism, deny racism and slavery and the yeah. realities of like the most brutal period in the history of this country. That still is a major foundational principle of how people are treated in this country. If and they're black Resources and
0: were distributed.
2: Like yeah. Distributed. I mean, it's, yeah. it's so just for me, it's a lot of people are scared of, they're either ashamed of being wrong or they're scared of learning the truth because then a whole bunch of stuff in their minds will crumble before their eyes. So they don't see it as the apology that needs to be made before you can repair what's been broken, which isn't even possible if you look at the Mm -hmm. scale of institutional racism within the United States. But they're looking at it more as like, I think a lot of white people try to protect our, Feelings before we're really ready to hear honesty about what it is we've done and our impact. So, yeah. Yeah. I know I answered a lot of questions that you didn't particularly ask me. No, but man. That's, I, I, I think especially about time. From,
0: no, especially coming from someone like you, like it's, it's, I'm very fascinated by the conversation. It's very important. Um, but if you go back to Trapdoor more specifically now, uh, we have to talk about the production and Messiah Music's contribution to this yeah. because uh obviously just like flatly, like if the if I just heard these instrumentals in a vacuum without any of the context of the record and the themes, it would sound amazing. It's Maasai music. He's one of the best producers out. But what I really liked about this album is that I felt like his beats were really like paired well with the content and and the vibe and the themes. like it was shrouded in darkness, it was eerie. Mm. But there was, like, it's very reminiscent to, like, if you're, like, looking in a trapdoor in some attic. Like, I just get that feeling. Uh, even, like, the the album cover, which I'm blocking right now, just that feeling. But there was really a few moments of, like, when things were brighter. It really feels beautiful. And I, so, like, I just overall, I really liked that marriage. Why do you think, uh, like, and how did you and Messiah collaborate towards this? Like, did you give him some kind of guidance to, like, what you were looking for or did he kind of hear what you were saying and kind of tried to paint around that? How did that all work?
2: Yo, you know, what's crazy is that it's the, it's the simplest collaboration ever. Messiah makes beats and sends me packs and I just pick what I like. That's it. And then I also, in addition to crediting Messiah for just being somebody who has an incredible ear for music and and breaks and loops and the ability to bring textures and emotions out of these beats that a lesser producer would just kind of leave dry as hell and sounding like a RZA knockoff. Mm -hmm. In addition to giving Messiah his due, I also got to give Willie green his due as well, because this album was two tracked. So we didn't have stems for the beats. So Messiah would just send waves of the beats. Wow. And what Green Green did with these beats is amazing. Like, this is an album that when I first turned in the pre-mix master, I didn't. I thought it was going to be a headphone album, you know, like it's something you listen to when you're like zoning out or like a Bluetooth album. You're at the crib, you know, just trying to listen to music. This knocks in the car. This album really knocks. Compassion, especially the baseline on Compassion is like, I remember being in the car, I almost crashed because I was. (laughs) Cause I had to, I had to, no, I literally had to pull over and text Messiah and be like, have you listened to compassion in your car yet? And he said, no, he hadn't. And I was, and I, you know, that was when I hit him with all of the exclamation points and capital letters about how he needed to go get in his car to listen to it right now. So yeah, I mean, I got to give green a, a lot of props as well, but no, Messiah is such a good producer that really the things he makes, if you, if he sends you a hundred beats and you pick 10, you've got a classic album. Yeah. It's kind of whatever mood it is you're going for. As long as you have an ear that's sharp enough to grab the best 10. So yeah, I think it was just kind of a matter of putting them together over the years, putting them in playlists, trying to find ways for them to fit together. And yeah, I mean, just both of us kind of sharpening our crafts over the years before finally recording and releasing this album.
0: And were the beats that you chose mainly uh, newer beats that he'd done, or like did you put, select some Masai music beats from like 2015?
2: I mean, there are there are beats on there that he made for me in 2015. There yeah, are beats on there that were in the initial pack packs he sent me in like late. 2013 early 2014 so you know i i there are like some joints that didn't get swapped out there are some older joints that i made songs to that we're gonna hold for the next album so you guys have another album you're working on together yeah yeah, yeah. i mean oh, we shit. can't I, look if i make <laughs> one album with Masai, okay. i'm making another one i if, mean yeah why not no man other, why if not? for no other reason than uh I cannot just rap over his beats for a whole album once. That's happening again. So yeah, I, it's, I'm just very fortunate in that I get to work with a lot of producers um, who are just kind of in the primes of their careers, and there's no downhill slide in sight. Yeah. And, I, and right. I think you get, like you said, you deserve credit too for, for having
0: the ear to pick them out. Cause like all these records have a distinct sound. Like I like this, the scenic deluxe, man, that just, there's a certain kind of wackiness or just like explosive weirdness that Nick Arcade, I haven't been so familiar with his records, but I've heard a few and I heard that one specifically. And yeah, it's just, it's just so interesting. The, the sample work that he does, it's just super cool. August Fanon's was, I said this before, actually, when I did like a, a little piece on the record that I feel like you picked the the cleanest, like most pretty August Phenom beats I've ever heard him make. And mm. that's saying something like that alive beat like that. It was like you could listen to this in a park with like birds flying around, like sentimental Like, And then this one is just so dark and precise, mm. like it, it fit all of these just fit really well sonically mm. with what you were going for.
2: I appreciate it man and and I I do have to give big ups to Nick Arcade cuz that scenic creative partnership everything that I think a lot of the love that I'm getting right now as a rapper cuz Messiah anything Messiah touches is going to get love cuz it's amazing but it all starts with Nick being willing to put together an EP in 8 days and him just kind of sending those beats to me writing knocking it out dropping it and then being willing to double back and uh make five more. And the thing that I love about Nick Arcade's beats is it, it kind of like if I if I were to compare it to playing styles of, of like basketball players, right? Mm. Like you could tell where somebody like LeBron is is like a marriage of skill sets he picked up from magic Johnson and Michael Jordan. Yeah. And, and obviously other players, I'm sure that I'm just not knowledgeable enough to be able to recognize in his style. But Nick is, is from that doom mad lib side of things where he makes these incredibly off kilter beats that are phenomenal. Yeah. And, and dissonant, and uh, Rich like Jones one, man. I'm, I'm trying Ooh. to think the add to one. Oh my god. Where the Ooh. drums knock, and that's why I don't want to call it lo-fi, because everything knocks. Like everything he makes knocks and sounds super clean. But uh yeah, he's he's incredible. And Fanon as well. Fanon would probably be kind of like in that Pete Rock, like the other side of Pete Rock's influence from Small Pro. So just, yeah, beautiful loops, beautiful breaks. And then Messiah, the thing I've been saying, and I'll probably say this on every podcast where people ask me about Messiah, its it sounds like the beats RZA lost in the flood. Like Messiah went, he grabbed those, and we've all been reaping the benefits of them in the underground for like the past 10 years, you know?
0: Yeah, yeah, I mean, when you say Rizza, like Rizza, obviously Messiah, like, has that, has that rugged feel that a RZA beat would have, but especially RZA's later work, like, uh, he definitely had, he was definitely moving to, like, that cinematic, like, even just his 2000s, post, like, 2000s work, that initial run, like, he was definitely going to more, like, pretty cinematic, um, a lot more orchestral sounds, and I find, like, Messiah does a really great job of, like, making shit rugged, but there's, like, really beautiful flashes of, of uh, jazz and other kind of textures that I do feel like rizzo was going for. And I don't, I actually like, I don't prefer that to what he did in the nineties, but Messiah, mm-hmm. the way he did that is just it's so unique.
2: Yeah. Messiah will like, I think where some producers would grab the horn sample, like the the main loop of a horn sample, like maybe the main five notes, Messiah will grab the last two notes of the solo and it sounds phenomenal. Mm -hmm. So he hears things in the samples he picks and the breaks he uses that nobody else would be able to hear. And is also able to express emotions in his music that nobody else would be able to express. So I think a major reason why Trapdoor works as well as it does is because he and I were communicating on a different frequency through the music we were making. And there was something about what he was doing that was bringing those rhymes out of me and I hope that that energy went the other way too. So, yeah, man, I'm sure it did. Uh, listen, this has been a great
0: conversation. I, I love the insight that you gave towards all your work and just on other topics generally outside of music. That was very, uh, enlightening. Before you do go, I want to just give you a moment to talk about any upcoming work you have, particularly one I'm going to call out is because I saw you tweeted it. it's a Album with Solar 5 and Green Slime that will put Ooh. put people in a headlock, like you said. So could you elaborate yeah. on that and just anything else you got coming up?
2: All right. All right. So I, that I don't that's not coming out. I want it to come out next year. I don't want people to think it's going to be quarter one or quarter two, though, because we okay. got to go back in. I'm not going to be recording any new material for quite some time. So. um you know, I, I want to go back in and kind of revise some of this stuff so that we have the best possible takes to put out to back up all this shit I've been talking, but it's, it's a, yeah, it's, it's crazy. It's an album where we make the songs. And then there was a moment where I just looked across the room at solar five and we just shook our heads. Like we couldn't believe we made it.
0: Are our, uh, solar five and green summer, are they like the main producers on that?
2: Yeah. Yes. And then we have a joint from Messiah, and we have a joint from Seb Severe, who I'm doing an album with next year. So the Def Severe album is coming next year. I have an album with Boathouse that's coming out on closed sessions next year. The Def Prez album, which was supposed to drop this year, is dropping next year. Um, I don't know when it'll be coming, but I've got music in the cut with people like Disco Vietnam and Ray West, yes. and um some more work with knows the time, just like next year, next year is gonna be really, really dope. I think if if people were rocking with what we did this year, next year is all about elevation. And I just hope that people who got hooked by what I did this year, uh, enjoy what they're in for next year. I'm sure they will, man. I'm sure they will. Those sound fucking intriguing. Yeah.
0: All right, man, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for your time and just all the best with your, your 2022 and being a father and all of the good stuff that come with that. So thank you. I really, really appreciate what you're bringing to the music game right now.
1: Thank you. And,
2: and thank you again for being such an ardent supporter of what we do and really trying to spread the word. And again, you know, people in the underground lean on voices like yours when it comes to what they tune into, what they enjoy, and then what they feel comfortable spreading the word about as well. So thank you for all the work you've done this year to to really bring a lot of light to our corner of the underground. I man, appreciate it
0: you. means a lot to hear that from you, man. Thank you. Thank you so much and, and take care. All right, you too. Peace. Peace.
1: Let my city remember me like I live there My slang fit ears like a splinter When I speak I watch my mama's skin tear Kick the rhyme and it moves like winter air My thinnest years were spitting suits that didn't fit me scared of dying Like my friends and family and teachers and students Grim Reaper might not touch you yet But he mentally abusive
0: So this concludes today's episode Of the Rap Music Plug podcast Presented by QLC TV I hope this episode gave you some fresh new perspectives on the latest rap releases, as well as a recommendation for the next great rap record to add to your collection. If you're an artist looking to level up your career, getting more gigs, album sales, merch sales, whatever it may be, I would love to help you with that by providing you artist development and writing services. So if you're interested, contact me via email at qlctv.podcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com Or hit me up via Twitter or Instagram at Pod. I would be honored to lend my expertise and help you grow your career as an artist. And also for regular rap fans that just want to hear more quality commentary on the genre, follow me on Twitter and Instagram as well. For exclusive content and updates related to the show, follow the Rap Music Plug Podcast on Facebook, To help the show grow and ensure that everyone's listening to the best rap music at all times, follow the show on the podcast platform of your choice. Make sure you leave a review and rating on Apple Podcasts so that the show can be spotlighted by that wonderful algorithm and be exposed to more people. You can find all of this information along with exclusive playlists created by myself by clicking the link that's in the episode's notes. So that's all for today. Talk to you soon. Peace.